Uh, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Well, it is my great joy and privilege to be with you and to be preaching the word as we continue our series looking at the Gospel of Mark. So if you don't know me, my name is Paul, and I lead the team that oversees New Life Community Church, and it's my absolute delight to share with you that we, we now carry leadership responsibility for one church family that meets across three locations. I know, crazy stuff. Last Sunday, I was in Verwood for a handover service where we as an eldership team received the shepherding responsibility for the church family there. And now we begin that journey of grafting those guys into the family of New Life Community Church. So my encouragement to you is please be praying for us as that happens. Let's be mindful of them as they begin connecting with us through One Church Sundays and other events going forward. Let's give them a wonderful family welcome. But above all, let's give thanks to God for all that he has done and all that he is doing. It was actually a truly special to be a service to be part of. I thought it was very honoring to those who've been carrying the leadership responsibility since the beginning of that church family. I think it was also tangible to experience that alongside thankful hearts for the history of the church and all that God had done, there was certainly a stirring of faith for the future. When I was preparing today's preach, I usually spend time, a little bit of time asking God, which you'll be pleased to hear, <laughs> what is it that you want to speak to your church? What do you want me to deliver out of the text of this moment? And I felt God say to me, let the scripture speak for itself, which basically means get out of the way, Paul, and uh, let my word do the talking. Okay, so I found myself then saying, okay, I, I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying, less of me more of you, Lord Jesus. And that's what I pray for us right now, for all of us here. We're going to pray less of us, more of you, Lord Jesus, as we come to your word. So, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And Lord, in these contexts, we just want to say, we let our words be for you. Uh, let your word speak for itself. Uh, and we say, Lord, less of us and more of you. Lord Jesus, I know that as we lay ourselves down and everything that is happening and going on in our lives and make you the biggest thing, make you the center of it all. I thank you that in your grace and in your power and in your love, you administer care into all of our situations. But Lord Jesus, right here, right now, we want to say, let you be the biggest thing here in this moment. Let your word prevail in our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's uh, preach title is called Counter-Cultural Jesus. And to help us discover what that means, we're going to be rooted in the Gospel of Mark chapters 2 and 3. So if you've got your Bibles, just keep your thumb in that area of chapters 2 and 3. So in this text that we're going to be looking at, we'll find four counter-cultural examples where the behavior of Jesus seems to rub against the grain and irritate some of the people around him at the time, particularly those who had social and moral influence amongst the Jews. So hopefully we'll discover why Jesus behaved like he did, how that behavior was potentially important at the time, and why that's actually might be important for us today, here and now, as we look to live out life as faithful followers of Jesus. So before, before I let the scripture speak for itself, I thought it might be helpful to have a think through what it means when we use that phrase counter-cultural. 
And to understand countercultural, we need to understand a definition of culture. So culture is a word that is used to summarize common behavior, traditions, ideas, and practice that we discover amongst a people group or place at a particular time. So you wouldn't have to travel too far to discover that cultural practice in a town like Fordingbridge is different to the cultural practice in a city like Salisbury, which is only 20 minutes up the road, it, I believe, if you're doing the speed limit. Maybe it's a bit more. Okay, right. When I'm chatting to Ari, who is my brother in Christ out in Mongolia, whilst our faith is the same, our cultures are very different. For example, when you ask a girl out in Mongolia, it's first date, then marriage. So for both the man and woman, you have to think very carefully before you say, yeah, let's go watch a movie together. Culture is really the expected norms for the time. You know, like when we see someone we know and we say, hey, how you doing, mate? And they say, yeah, good, thanks. How's things with you? And you say, yeah, good, thanks, mate. Take it easy. That's quite a common cultural exchange for us. But just because it's common now doesn't mean that it will always be common. Culture can change. And that's not just from visiting different places and having different experiences. It, it can be someone looking at a particular environment and saying, this common way of behaving needs to change because the normal practice or the normal behavior that currently is not helping. You, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be me if I didn't have a slight sports illustration. So when a new manager takes on a football team, quite often part of the biggest job is to change a culture, common behaviors, attitudes, and practices. These things actually have led them or led the team to performing poor, poorly. The same goes when you like take on a, an existing business. You know, if, if it's common practice throughout the company, culture is actually quite a hard thing to change. But the most important thing is that it can be changeable. So to be countercultural is to work in opposition to the common practices, behaviors, traditions, and expectations of that place or people group. As you can imagine, to work in opposition to that which is the norm for most people, that's going to stir up a bit of a, a, bit of a tension. It's going to maybe grab a few headlines. Now, I found 10 amusing British cultural norms from no one other than countryliving.com. And that's not because I have it bookmarked in Safari, okay? I just, I do want to raise your hand, right? If this is actually a cultural norm for you, okay? If it's a British cultural norm for you. And I'd also like to imagine what it'd be like to be, you know, countercultural to some of these things. So, count, British counter, <laughs> British cultural norm number one, dunking biscuits in our tea. Are we... <laughs> Two, avoiding sitting next to someone on public transport at all costs. <laughs> Three, incessant queuing. <laughs> the continuously unpleasant something that we do all the time because we do it. Um, four, apologizing for everything. <laughs> I, I actually caught my daughter in her football match apologizing to the opposing team for tackling them. I'm so sorry, are you okay? <laughs> How was that? Five, eating chips with weird toppings. Curry sauce, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Or, I actually don't know, has anyone done gravy with cheese? Oh, I'm not sure about that one. 
Six, and I'm not sure this is true, it might have been, uh, never-ending politeness. That we may have moved out of the phase of that cultural norm. Eating fry-ups for breakfast. Yes, come on. Uh, eight, awkwardly stepping side to side, trying to walk past someone. I'm oh, sorry. <clears throat> Nine, this is my favorite. Pretending to like people we don't. <laughs> and having meals based on days of the week. Sunday roast, Friday fish and chips. <clears throat> now, to be countercultural, it can actually be a positive or a negative thing. It really depends on how healthy the existing culture is. Okay. Let's meet more of you, Lord Jesus. Let's get into the text by looking at our first countercultural example. So if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 2, we're going to read uh, from verses 13 to 17. This is our first example we're looking at. And you might have a title like something like Jesus Calls Levi. <clears throat> so he, that is Jesus, went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I guess the question we want to be addressing from the text is the same as the scribes. Why does he eat? Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? So at this point, the reputation of Jesus was rapidly growing. And so wherever he... Jesus went, a crowd would follow, and the makeup of that crowd consisted of several groups of people who commonly crop up within these sections and throughout the Gospels. And to, so to help with that question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners, we kind of need to know a little bit about something of the people groups in this text and culture. Firstly, we have the disciples of Jesus, those who had committed to journey with him and learn from him. We have the Pharisees. These guys were significant social and moral influences amongst the Jews, and I'd probably go as far as to say as they saw themselves as enforcers of the law God had given to the people to live, to live life in community with God and one another. They were also culture creators of their time, for they had actually taken many aspects of this law and extended its application into practices that went beyond the heart of the law. And the rest of the crowd is like divvied up into three groups, it would seem. So these guys are uh, ones who abided by the law, one group. Those who abided by the law God had given into Israel as understood by the Pharisees. Those who did not and those who did not abide by this law. And these guys were known as sinners and tax collectors. Now tax collectors, they got a special classification all of its own. They too were counted as those who did not abide Sinners, 
by the law of Moses, but in addition were thought of as traitors to the Jewish people as they worked for the Roman Empire whom the Jews were subject to. So these guys collected taxes from the Jewish people and had a reputation for being corrupt in their practice. So they were probably charging a little bit extra to the Jews, lining their pockets. So for the Pharisees, they were like next-level sinners. So the question of why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors relates to holiness, to that which is clean and that which is unclean, holy and unholy, law-abiders and law-breakers. The Pharisees had committed themselves to this meticulous devotion of the law given by God, and much more. It was a highly disciplined lifestyle and became the standard at which they measured the other Jewish people. The culture and practices that extend, extended beyond the requirement of the law became the expectation. So the bar was set high to be counted as one who was holy, which means set apart for God. And so remaining holy meant to disassociating with those who are unholy, law-abiders keeping themselves separate from law-breakers. Now, here in Jesus, we have one who is, who is being regarded by the people as holy. In Mark chapter 1, we have this unclean spirit, a man who spots Jesus and cries out in the public environment of the synagogue of all places, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. According to the standard set by the Pharisees, Jesus eating and dining, chatting and associate with sinners and tax collectors, it rubs completely against the grain of their practice and theology. And Jesus in doing this is being countercultural. How can a holy one spend time with those who are unholy? Now in doing this, Jesus is not intentionally coming to turn the things of normal upside down. He just comes to set the tone, the tone of the king, the tone of the holy one. And so in faithfully being who he is, that in itself begins to turn the world as the Jewish people knew it upside down. This begins to usher in and reveal the heart of God and what it was to be holy and set apart as the people of God. So in reply to the question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees thought they were righteous, holy, clean. So the call that Jesus was making was not applied to them, but to those who knew their deep need to be rescued from where they were at in life. And Jesus had no shame with being associated with him. Okay, a little bit of food for thought on this one. In this Aryan text, I thought it interesting that many people follow Jesus. That's what it says. Many people followed him. But only some of them were called disciples. And I wondered what really marked the difference, you know. Well, in Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, he expands the response Jesus gives to the scribes and the Pharisees and writes, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I think repentance becomes that key factor that takes you from the position of someone who is following Jesus to becoming a disciple of Jesus. For Levi, the tax collector, repentance is the U-turn that says no more to this way of life, of cheating people and manipulating the tax books and saying, and saying yes to a life of faithful commitment and to learn and to apply all that Jesus teaches and asks of us. You might be here this morning. You might be just following the crowd, trying to learn, 
get a glimpse of Jesus. But the marked difference will come through repentance, fully embracing the call of Jesus to you and leaving behind all that brings unhealthy distraction from learning, from, from learning at his feet and applying his teaching in your life. Countercultural example number two. Let's look at Mark chapter 2, 18, 18 to 22, verses 18 to 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine, skin, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. So here again, the behavior in Jesus of Jesus, sorry, and how he leads his disciples becomes somewhat, somewhat provocative to those around him because it seems like he's swimming against the tide of common expectation. The people following Jesus are beginning to hail him as a prophet and a rabbi. And then as they look to the common practices of other disciples and of the Pharisees, they're curious, why aren't the disciples of Jesus following suit? Why are they not doing the same? If Jesus is a prophet and John the Baptist is a prophet, why are the disciples of Jesus not fasting when the disciples of John are? <clears throat> now, fasting was a common practice and involved the abstaining from food in order to seriously bring yourself before God. And in those days, the Jews would fast for the salvation of Israel, for its rescue, for the rule from the rule of the Roman Empire, amongst other things. It's interesting here, I find, that the people are so caught up with why Jesus is not instructing his disciples to fast like all the others, that they miss the fact that standing right before them is the one they've all been fasting for. This saviour, this rescuer whom God has sent into the world. The disciples not fasting ended up being countercultural because it distinctly went in the other direction to what was commonly expected at the time. And I think the lesson here for us is that we shouldn't practice things for practice sake. We need to understand why we have a culture of doing something in order to see the value of it. If we practice for practice sake, the danger is the most important thing could be standing right in front of us and we may completely miss it. So when we talk about reading the Bible, this is about growing in your knowledge of God and his story. It's about finding out your place in that story. Think about the next time, think about that next time you sit down with the scriptures. 
prayer is about relationship with God. And that relationship can be inspired by that knowledge that you gain of God. Don't just perform the practice, but engage with it so you understand the true value of what you're doing. Jesus even nudges those around him in the right direction by addressing himself as the bridegroom. Bride and bridegroom language would have been familiar to the Jews from the Old Testament. It was used to describe the relationship between the people of Israel and God. Israel is the bride. God is the bridegroom. Jesus is pushing for an engagement. He's saying, think about what I'm saying to you. Now, you can fast and take serious time out with God for different reasons. But here, I think, in this context, Jesus is saying fasting is connected to longing. When the bridegroom is taken away, you are longing for his return. There was no need for the disciples to fast while Emmanuel was with them. God was with them. When Jesus goes, when he goes to sit at the right hand of his father and the church is commissioned to the nations... Then the disciples of Jesus, the bride of the bridegroom, will fast. They will fast in their longing for the return of Jesus. Then Jesus finishes by saying, If you remain in this pattern of thinking, i.e. embracing practice for practice's sake, but closing your heart to the things of God, then Jesus can't do anything with that. It's like trying to pour new wine into an old wineskin. It just ain't going to work. The old wineskin won't cope. It will just burst. And Jesus here is ushering in something new. And he needed hearts that were ready to receive that new wineskins for new wine. Countercultural example number three, reading three verses 23 to 27. <clears throat> One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and they made their way, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence? which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay, let's talk Sabbath. Sabbath was a day of rest for God's people. It still is still is a day of God's rest, of rest for God's people. I think probably, it's probably if, if anything, probably needs to be better at reintroducing it into our lives. But we get the model from the creation account. Six days God created, on the seventh day he rested. We get the command given in the Ten Commandments to God's people, which I shall read to you from Exodus 20. Let me find that. Remember days in Sunday school when you you know you got challenged on the you know to find a piece of scripture and everyone raced to get there as fast as they could. The most holy one was the person who could get there first. <laughs> you can already tell my level of holiness. 
Okay, right, here we go. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a, sab- is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Sabbath day is a day intentionally set apart for the Lord. We lay down all our working tools and reap the benefit of the work we have accomplished during the week. Give thanks to God for his favor and faithfulness and be refreshed. Be revitalized. You know, it says in Psalm 23, he restores my soul. That is what it is to Sabbath, for you to give thanks and to allow God to restore your soul, refresh you, revitalize you, let your body, mind, and spirit recover and be restored for the week ahead. The behavior of Jesus here is not to counter the law of God. When he and his disciples actually are plucking the heads of grain from other people's field, according to God's command for community living, actually this is perfectly acceptable. If you're hungry, you could pick the grapes off your neighbor's vineyard as you pass through. Similar with the heads of grain and neighbor's field. And the principle being is that you can be blessed, but don't take advantage. Don't take advantage. So, you know, you take a few grapes, but you don't take your massive rucksack and fill it. I love what God institutes in this attitude towards family and God. The fruit of what I labor can bless another. And there is a lovely freedom that the family of God, I love this, can roam from one neighbor's field to another, enjoying the blessing of it. It's something to think about, isn't it? In the way that we bless one another as the family of God, the, f- the fruit of our labor, that people can enjoy the blessing of it when they're in need. So in this case, Jesus is really behaving perfectly in line with the expectation God has for his people. However, what Jesus did was counter cultural at the time because the Pharisees had gone beyond the heart for Sabbath and had given additional conditions to be met. The irony being that they made it very hard work for the people of God to rest. As Jesus highlights, this meant Sabbath became something to rule over the people and therefore a burden rather than the Sabbath for the blessing of the people. These additional rules or expectations at the time saw to it that even picking grains to satisfy hunger was an act of work. And therefore, Jesus is once again swimming against their tide. So a little bit of food for thought on this one, okay? In the same way that Jesus identifies himself with the bridegroom that in the previous section, we also see himself identify as the Son of Man. Now, a quick note on this one. The Son of Man is a common term to the Jews that means exactly what you might think, an ordinary human being. Again, a good cultural example, something that we use frequently in that time. We wouldn't find that today in being used in Fornibridge, would we? However, the ESV study Bible in the commentary highlights that Jesus uses this term in a very specific way over 80 times in the Gospels. And when Jesus says it, he is communicating something different. The subtle difference being that Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man rather than a son of man. 
And in that small difference, Jesus is connecting himself to something much bigger. Daniel is a prophet, we discover in the Old Testament. He has a, he has a book with his name on it. And in it are recorded several visions, and one that is specifically connected to someone who in image was like a son of man. But this man came from the clouds of heaven, from the ancients of days, from God himself. And it says in chapter 7, verse 13, that this son of man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus, like the nudge of the bridegroom, the Son of Man reference is another pointer from Jesus to those who are able to see and to hear and to understand that he is the one. He is the Son of Man, the one whom Daniel talked about. The one the ancient, ancient of days sent, the one who will come, the one who will go, the one who will come again, and the one who has an everlasting rule, an everlasting reign, and a kingdom shall, that shall not be destroyed. If the Son of Man had this type of authority, he is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay, last cult, countercultural example. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. So again, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So here again, this is, like, this is Jesus trying, it's like Jesus trying to pour new wine into old wineskins. The Pharisees are unwilling to receive Jesus. Hardness of heart. I think their hope at this stage is that Jesus will fit into what they've built rather than fitting into what Jesus is building. From their perspective, anything or anyone working outside of their expectation or cultural norms is seeking to work against them. Now, whilst Jesus being compliant with the law, he is also ushering in something new. And he comes with an, an authority and a wisdom and a power that they, they just don't have. And so either something new has to happen in their hearts to receive this new wine that Jesus is offering, or they can refuse. And Jesus is going to do what he's come to fulfill anyway. And if they don't get on board, well, that new wine is just going to cause them to burst. And that is what happens. Jesus healing this man with the withered hand is enough for them to burst and begin to conspire against him. So I guess there are lots of lessons that we can learn from these texts, but in keeping with the theme of countercultural Jesus, maybe it's helpful to address these four questions as, way, 
as way of response. What does it mean to be countercultural? What does it mean when Jesus is countercultural? What does it mean for us to be countercultural? And what does it mean for us when God is doing something new? To be countercultural is to be seen to rub against the grain or swim against the tide of what the normal expectations of behavior and traditions commonly held by a people, group, or place. We find that that's quite a normal thing to happen in a weird way in our context. It's almost cultural that people swim against the tide. You know, maybe I start, maybe I'll start intentionally sitting next to people on public transports. Or stop apologizing for everything and only apologize for the things that matter. However, what does it mean when Jesus is countercultural? And I think this is the question that's so important because it plays directly into our understanding of how we are to behave as Christians when it comes to living our life for Jesus in the society in which we live. I think there's just a huge difference between being intentionally confrontational and intentionally bringing a, talent, a challenge. I don't think Jesus comes with the intention of stirring things up politically or religiously. I don't think he comes to intentionally go against the grain or to be countercultural. I think Jesus comes to be faithful to the mission entrusted to him. I think he comes in love to those he knew before the foundation of the world. However, I think Jesus also clearly knows that his faithfulness is going to rub a few people up the wrong way. It will bring division and change, change of heart, change of practice, change of culture. And so that in itself, Jesus knows that what he will bring will be countercultural just by being faithful to the word of God and the mission of God he has been entrusted to accomplish. So what does it mean for us to be countercultural? Well, in one way, it's got really nothing to do with us attempting to be countercultural. However, it's got everything to do with us being, being faithful. Faithful to God. Faithful to his word. Faithful to his people faithful to his mission for those who are lost and need the saving work of Jesus in their lives. In knowing our society, in knowing our cultural norms, our expectations, our behaviors, in knowing these things, you can guarantee that to be a faithful Christian and disciple of Jesus, at times you're going to find yourself being countercultural. Not because you want to rub against the grain, and I think that's important because I think doing that intentionally carries a rebellious nature in it but doing it with a heart to be faithful and that will lead you to places where you will end up swimming against the tide wherever you find yourself whether you're at university and you're making decisions about lifestyle and who you hang out with and how you behave relationships all of that jazz with you at school work home even church life there will be areas where potentially faithfulness to God will cause you to swim against the tide. But the caution is, let us not practice for practice's sake. Let us, not, let us work toward understanding the value in the reasons why we do the things the way that we do. 
Now, two of our key cultural streams that we have here in New Life Community Church is a journey with Jesus culture and an invitation culture. <coughs> Excuse me. As an eldership team, we recognize that these are key values that we hold because it relates to our investment to see people grow strong and robust in their faith and walk with Jesus. They also communicate something of the mission that we hold together to make disciples of all nations. And that in doing this, everyone has a part to play. That invitation is probably the most simple and biblical approach to seeing those who don't know Jesus walk into an environment where Jesus is honored, the good news is shared, and the presence of Jesus is tangible. Amen? Let's aim for faithfulness like Jesus. And yet know, like Jesus, that being faithful at times will stir up some opposition. And finally... What does it mean for us when God is doing something new? And I think there are times and seasons when God clearly is breaking through in a new way. And I think the challenge for us is going to be how do we respond to that? Are we going to behave in a pharisaical way and hold the line of the culture and customs that we have always held on to? Meaning just because the heart of the Sabbath is to rest, reflect, rejoice in God and allow to restore our soul doesn't always mean that it has to be expressed in the same way. Or are we going to come as those eager to continuously sit at the feet of Jesus and learn, preparing our hearts for new seasons and new things and therefore potentially new ways for us to do things? If you talk to me about Two months ago, I would have never even considered that we would be one church in three locations and heading on to Downton in September. But I think, you know, our heart is always to be faithful to Jesus and what he's calling us to do, whether it's in the macro or in, or in the micro, in our individual lives. And sometimes that's going to feel like that swimming against the tide of what we expect, what are the cultural norms. Oh, this is the way we've always done church. And as long as we're not moving like key theological foundations, there are, there's bandwidths of grace for maneuverability. And we want to be ones who are saying yes to Jesus and to his shepherding direction. At times, faithfulness will mean standing strong and not moving. But at times, faithfulness will mean flexibility and feet ready to run. And in those moments, my feeling is either we can be on board with what God is doing and prepare our hearts for something new, or we can be a bit stubborn and a bit hard-hearted. And like when new wine comes, along with the Pharisees, cause us to burst. When I look, and my goal is not educating or on, you know, to educate on previous church expressions or current church expressions and why they're having really challenging times at the moment. But if you were to look at church, some church contexts, I see the history and I think, you know, I've read some of the documentation of some early church history of how, how these guys have been so faithful and seen incredible things that God has done. And yet now in these days, you are being so stubborn. And I say that not because I'm looking at their church context and as an observation at all. I'm just saying, actually, that's a teaching moment for us, 
for myself, for the team, for us as a church family. I'd love us to be known for our complete commitment to faithfulness to Jesus. And my hope is that in the years to come, we won't resort to being stubborn when Jesus is about to do another new thing. It's not about being countercultural. It's about being faithful. And faithfulness will do its thing. Let me invite the worship team. Shall we stand together? I think um, I do really want to call us to respond in, in it with a heart attitude of worship and, and hearts that say yes to faithfulness to Jesus. And it may be that as we come together in worship that God starts speaking in the hearts of individual lives of words that will bring encouragement to the church and building up. And so even now, Lord God, I just, in response to your word, we thank you for the model of Jesus. We thank you for his incredible model of faithfulness. We say, Lord Jesus, that we aspire to be like you. We want to be faithful. You've been faithful. Our goal is not to come and to be provocative and intentionally challenge the way that we do things in this world just for the sake of it. We want to walk with you, and we know at times that will be like swimming against the tide of society. Lord Jesus, I pray even now for us individually and corporately that you'll teach us what it is to stand strong when we need to stand strong, to run when we need to run, persevere when we need to persevere, train and learn when we need to do those things. Be flexible and have that ability to softly be molded into a different shape. Lord, I pray that hardness of heart will not creep in, that we won't practice things for practice sake. We thank you that living with you is a relationship, it's real. That we are family together, not an organization. So Lord, I just want to thank you that your scripture speaks for itself. And we just want to come in response to your word and say less of me and more of you, Lord Jesus. Take away the things in me that get in the way when you are doing a new thing. And Lord, help us not to think about being countercultural, but be a people wholeheartedly devoted in faithfulness to you. We know that in doing so, Sometimes we'll move in the opposite direction to the common practices of those around us. Nonetheless, help us in those times to stand strong, run for you, and protect us from getting caught up into the current. Thank you that you are the God of breakthrough and that you go before us and are behind us. In the name of your precious Son, Jesus, amen.